is October 14th, 2010. Welcome to Neuroscientist Talk Shop, UTSA's neurobiology podcast. So um, Rama and I have been having a bit of a banter, Rama Rutnam, and we've been trying to figure out who's going to host this podcast. It actually, in the end of, at the end of the day, it really doesn't matter because it's going to be an excellent podcast because we've got Peter Narens here. And um, many of you may have surmised from listening to our other podcasts that our speakers do give a talk. At this talk that we had earlier with Peter Narens, Rama gave a really excellent introduction, So it, and it's far superior to anything that I could possibly say about Peter Narens. So I'm going to give it over to you, Rama, to, to give your introduction to Peter Narens. Thank you, Sama. Thank you very much. I don't mean to hijack your, uh, your podcast. <laughs> but yes, it is a great pleasure to have Peter with us. Uh, he is, uh, uh, in case you are not so fortunate as to know him, um, you should. Uh, he is from the, he's a professor, a distinguished professor at the University of California at Los Angeles. And uh, he's a professor in the departments of um, physiological science and ecology and evolutionary biology. So I already have welcomed him, welcomed him to our campus and I welcome him yet again. And uh, other than Salma, um, we also have uh, Todd Troyer from uh, our campus. Um, and um, let's get the ball rolling here. So uh, let me give a very brief introduction, and I'm going to ask Peter to uh, to, to sort of uh, step into a couple of topics here. So Peter actually studies vocal communication in animals, uh, in a range of animals, and uh, he does so in a very, very broad sense. Um, he actually studies their ethology, uh, he studies their physiology, and then for good measure he adds uh, biophysics and biomechanics into the process, and he uses a range of techniques, um, using simple microphones in the wild, to, to uh, exotic lasers that he bounces off the eardrums of frogs, and uh, he studies sounds in the, in the normal hearing range, in the ultrasonic hearing range, and then the infrasonic hearing range, and so on. Okay, so... Um, he covers, in short, a very wide area in his research. And I must say it's not just research areas, but also geographical areas. And I hope we can go into some of these things today, if not all of them. So, Peter, it's always, uh, there's always exciting news from your lab. And, uh, but I want to start off um, and get the audience, uh, the, the, the listeners, uh, introduced to a few things. Firstly, you, were, you came out of a very famous neuroethology lab, uh, Bob Capranica's lab in Cornell. Uh, he defined frog acoustic communication as a neuroethological problem. And so the first thing we would really like you to do is tell us and tell the listeners something about the history of neuroethology. What really is neuroethology? People have a hard enough time understanding what neuroscience is. <laughs> so that's the first thing. The second thing is, because of the really large number of topics you have covered, we won't have time to go into it. And I would like to cover two what I think are very interesting and important uh, pieces of work you've done. The first is the exciting discovery of the frog in China, the so-called torrent frog, that uses ultrasound communication. This was never known before. I remember when it happened 10, 12 years ago, it excited uh, everybody, and the world media covered it. The second thing is, and we should go into the other end of the spectrum, is look at your work on the Golden Mole in the Namib Desert, which uses extremely low frequency sounds. So if you can, uh, if you can uh, get into these things and uh, hear a little more about uh, the stories that you have to tell us, that'd be great. Thank you, Rodney. It's wonderful to be here, first of all, and it's my first time here in San Antonio, and I've been treated so well. I want to thank everybody here, first of all, to say that out loud so that you all know what a wonderful place it is to come and visit. Thank you again, and what I'd like to address your first question it has to do with what is neuroethology and how did it start and so forth. So I was very fortunate in the time I was a graduate student in the lab of Bob Capranica. This is at the Department of Neurobiology and Behavior at Cornell University. Uh, at the time uh, when I joined that lab in 1970, 
Bob Copernica had joined the lab, his own lab, made his own lab for the first time in 1968. So he'd only been at Cornell two years. And before that, he was a, a full-fledged researcher at Bell Telephone Labs in New Jersey. So he was recruited from industry to come to Cornell to be a professor of neurobiology and behavior. The first year he was there, he had no students. The second year, in 1969, he had one graduate student called John Patton. And then in 1970, he started his lab in earnest, and he had he took on four more new graduate students, and I was one of those. So at the time, it wasn't a famous lab of neuroethology. It was a brand-new fledgling lab, and no one was there. So we were just working on our projects, and one of the people that was there with me at the time, one of the four graduate students, was Albert Fang, who, of course, you know, uh, Ratnam, because that was your Ph.D. thesis advisor. And uh, he and I became good friends. We shared an office. And there were another woman was called Martha Constantine. Uh, the first fellow that he recruited two years earlier as a graduate student was John Patton, I mentioned. So there was John Patton, Martha Constantine, Albert Fang, Peter Nairns, and a fellow called um, Joel Bradbury, the brother of Jack Bradbury. Mm-hmm. Okay. So that was the initial lab that Bob had. And uh, things were going along well, and we all had our projects, and it turned out that I was the only one of the five who had no background in neurobiology. Zero. My training was in electrical engineering, as was Albert's, but Albert had a master's degree in neurobiology from the University of Florida. So, sorry, University of Miami in Florida. So he and the others had been schooled in biology. So Bob Copernica told me before I got, before he took me on as a graduate student, he said, the only way I'll take you, Peter, is if you do the following two things. First of all, you have to accept the fact that before you meet these new graduate students that are coming in two weeks, you have to accept the fact that they're all going to graduate ahead of you because you have much less background. And second of all, he said, you have to take the following 40 hours of classes before you can come into my lab to do research. And so I basically started as a freshman, as a graduate student, taking freshman classes. I took introduction to biology. I took introduction to physiology. I took all of the ologies I could think of. I took entomology. I took uh, ornithology and herpetology and mammalogy and ichthyology and all everyone. And I was just in love with this new field of mine. So I could be, Bob was very encouraging. He said to me, Peter, you ought to take all the classes you want to take now because once you're a professor, you're not going to have any time to do this. And boy, was he correct about that. So I joined the lab, and I met for the first time in 1970 these other new students that came in. And we all started working. And we basically were doing projects together and independent, and we collaborated. And I wrote a paper with Albert and, and Bob Copernica. The first paper I wrote was actually on, uh, on Bullfrog Auditory System. It was published in 1975 in the Journal of Comparative Physiology. And uh, we worked together. And Bob was right. Everybody left and finished before I did because I was taking classes. I had never had, as an engineer, of course, I had inorganic chemistry and I had math and physics, but I never had organic chemistry, I never had biochemistry, I never had any of the ology. So this took time to, to catch up. So they left. Uh, in fact, Albert left in 1974, and I stayed on until 1976 to finish my degree. Um, and what I learned about that the concept of neuroethology was that it's, a, a subdivision, if you like, of the of the Society for Neuroscience, of the neuroscience discipline as a whole, in which people study animals in their natural habitat and and look at the neural basis of the behavior that they observe. So, in other words, the behavior is not behavior done in a lab necessarily. It's more it's more 
likely to be done where the animal lives in its natural habitat. So it's, it involves field work, it involves travel to places where animals actually live, it involves observation of these animals in their natural habitat, then it involves manipulative experiments where you either manipulate the environment, whether it be acoustic or visual or whatever you're studying, and then you obtain data in that way from the animal's natural behavior, and then typically you gather up those animals, then bring them back to the lab and study the neural basis of that behavior in the lab. So it's a combination of field work and physiology, although I say neurophysiology, it doesn't have to be neuro, it can be any kind of, for example, where it's now been studying for years, the mechanical basis of sound reception in different animals, and that involves making measurements of, mechanical measurements of motions of middle ears and so forth, and this is not neural, but it's certainly the physiological basis of behavior. And so... Neuroethology did not exist, as you mentioned, as a discipline until 1981, when the first meeting of the, it was called a proto-neuroethological meeting, occurred. And it occurred in a place called Kassel in northern Germany. It was organized by three, in, the, in those days, uh, people who were interested in the idea of the combination of field work and lab work. And these people were Bob Kapranica, Franz Huber from Seewiesen, Germany at the time, and George Peter Ewart from Kassel in Germany. So those three people uh, organized this meeting in, in Kassel. And what had happened was I had been a postdoc for two years in England. And during that time, Bob had invited many of his former graduate students to attend meetings with him around the world. But he had never invited me because I was away in England. When I got back and got my job at UCLA in 1978, uh, three years later, in 1981, this meeting occurred in Castle. So Bob felt it was about time to invite me to a meeting. So he invited me, as one of his former students, to join him to go to this meeting in Castle. So there I met people for the first time. For example, Walter Heiligenberg was there. Russ Frenault, who now is at Stanford. Walter Heiligenberg, unfortunately, passed away in 1995. Uh, Russ Frenault at Stanford. Um, we also, um, I also met Jim Simmons, who is now a professor of biology or psychology at Brown, uh, and many other people. Gunther Eret, who is right now in Ulm in Germany, and um, oh, there were many people there besides the ones I just mentioned, but I remember those. And I remember talking for the first time to people, of course, Ted Bullock was there, mm-hmm. and the people who were really interested in this combination, really, of behavior and physiology not just pure physiology, not just pure behavior, but the interface between these two areas. It was extremely exciting for me, and I was very, very happy that Bob was able to invite me and I was able to... Yeah, just a quick question, but uh, were some of the founders of Ethology there, people like Timbergen uh, or Connor Lawrence? Uh, no, 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 no. So uh, how, many, how, many, how many attendees were there? Probably about 60, I would say, 50 to 60. And the, as a result of that meeting, there was a book that came out. It was published... Uh, probably in 1983, I think. And it was a huge, thick book. And everybody at that meeting had a paper in that, uh, in that book. So it was wonderful. Uh, it was really the start of neuroethology. And it, they don't consider that the first neuroethological meeting. That's why I said called it a proto-meeting, because the real first meeting of the Society for Neuroethology, that's what was born at that meeting. The meeting was born... Oh, Mark Kanishi, of course, was another yes, participant. Was yes. So... Between Mark Kanishi and Ted Bullock and, and um, Bob Kapranica and Franz Huber, they formed this International Society of Neuroethology, ISN. And that really came to fruition in their first international meeting, which took place in Tokyo in 1986. And they decided to have a meeting of this type, this ISN, every third year. 
the first one being, the real one being in 1986, because the, the Castle meeting wasn't open to everyone. It was by invitation. But the, the rest of them, of course, were open to the world. And I think at that meeting in 1986, uh, it was very exciting because it was the first time that people who were really interested in neuroethology could come together, meet, talk, exchange ideas in an open forum. And it, it just took off from there. So a guy called Professor Aoki from Tokyo was the host of that meeting. And I've been to everyone, everyone since it started, including the castle one. So it's been a long career, and it's been absolutely wonderful meeting these people. Yeah. Let me ask a follow-up question, because I think uh, before you move on to the other two questions that I asked you, um, mm-hmm. Bob Kapranik uh, came up with this, well, and the reason why the frog became a neurotological sort of subject Mm-hmm. It was because of this interesting hypothesis called the matched filter hypothesis that, uh, or the matched filter theory that Bob came up with. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Because mm-hmm. that started it all. I think there was something before that, before his match filter hypothesis, because in this book, from this meeting in Castle, he talks about the match filter hypothesis. So that was really an early uh, discovery. But even before that, his real discovery, I think, was, was remarkable because in its simplicity. This is what I think was so beautiful about it. He discovered that the bullfrog, the American bullfrog, produces a single note call. I mean, he didn't discover that. He knew that. Everyone knew that. But what, what he did for the first time was he synthesized that call and he played it back to a single male bullfrog in a cage in the laboratory. And he observed the behavior of that frog when he heard his own mating call being played back to him. And the, the behavior that ensued was very simple. The bullfrog detected his own call being played back and he responded by giving a call himself. And Bob called this behavior the evoked vocal response of the male bullfrog. Up till now, this had been done in the past with different frogs, and this is not new. But then what he did was brand new. For the first time, he was able to electronically manipulate the synthetic call and play back a variant of it to the male bullfrog. And what he did was, since the bullfrog mating call is a single note call with two spectral peaks, he was able to filter out the low spectral peak and play back just the high one. When he played back just the high frequencies to the male bullfrog, no response from the bullfrog at all. When he filtered out the high frequency peak and played just the low frequency peak, no response from the bullfrog at all. But when he put both peaks together simultaneously in time, played them back, perfect response. So he was able to demonstrate with this very simple manipulation, but it was unique because people hadn't done it before, was that both the low and the high frequency peaks are necessary to evoke the evoked male vocal response from the male bullfrog. And they had to be present simultaneously. And so that was the background that we all walked into in 1970. That was published. As he did this work at Bell Labs. And it was a brilliant work. And he, he also published a monograph, yes. uh, which was done before he came to Cornell as well. And this is well known, this monograph on the bullfrog. The vocal response of the male bullfrog is entitled, published by MIT Press. Anyway, so at, when we walked into the lab, this was known. And so one of the things that I did was I said, okay, for my thesis, I'm inter- he, he was looking at the spectral coincidence of these two peaks. What about time is what I asked him. I said, what about the, the time? I said, can we study a frog that doesn't produce a single call, but rather a single note call, but rather a sequence of notes? And ask the question, is that sequence critical? And that was my PhD thesis. So I chose a frog in Puerto Rico called the Coquille because it was the shortest sequence I could think of, two notes. I mean, there are frogs that produce long note sequences, many note sequences, but I thought, that's too long, too hard. Simplify. So I came up with a two-note call, and that was the co-key. And I asked the question, is that sequence critical for a response, or what if you change the order, if you play it backwards? And you can't do that in the bullfrog call, because there's only one note in the bullfrog call. So that's, that's the way I went with my, my thinking. 
So the cookie was mm-hmm. uh, a call note followed by a keynote. That's right. right. And what did Sounds you like find? Like so, that cookie? Yes. Mm-hmm. So, so what was it that you found out about these two? I found that when you play the, the advertisement called the cookie call to a male, he responds in a particular way. Okay, And that way is he drops the second note of his call and produces just a co-note. If you, re- if you reverse the sequence and play it back, he does exactly the same thing. He doesn't care about the sequence. Now, if you just play the second note back, play the key note, no response at all from the male. And if you play the first note, you get the same as if you had the whole call. So the, the conclusion was, well, the first conclusion was, that the co-note, whether it be presented by itself or whether it's preceded by a keynote or whether it's followed by a keynote, causes this response. So the co-note is used by males in male-male interactions. And then the keynote, the second note, what we did there was we used the female. We put her between two loudspeakers. And in one loudspeaker, we play back the co-note. And the other loudspeaker, we play back the keynote, and we give her a choice, and she consistently chooses what I like to call the keynote speaker. <laughs> Sorry about that. <laughs> anyway, so this keynote is actually attractive to the females, and the male uses the co-note for male-male territorial interactions. That's an elegant partition uh, into temporal space of mm-hmm. the uh, aggressive, aggressive call and the, ter- and the advertisement. Exactly. So the way you describe this is, is it kind of makes me, me wonder whether uh, uh, there's maybe a particular relationship between neurothology and engineering in the sense that some of it, some of it is the, the technological innovation to be able to manipulate behavior on a very fine level. But there's also something about neurothology where you, know, you study these extreme species and they're often very you know, highly engineered. In a, in a way that, that I think there's a lot of uh, that point, that kind of a way of approaching problems in a lot of ethologists. And I, I wonder if you think that's, that's, realist, that's, that's true or, or not. Well, when you say a lot of ethologists, I would say a lot of neuroethologists. Yeah, that's what, yeah. I, that's yeah, what yeah. I meant. Because there are many ethologists who are not neuroethologists who don't think like this at all. Right. So I think you're probably right. It, as, as an engineer, as trained as an engineer, both... Uh, Rutnam and I both change as trained as engineers. I think we tend to look at problems, biological problems, even behavioral problems, with a kind of mechanistic approach at first. But then when you realize the amount of variability that accompanies any behavior, it, it, it makes you think twice about applying kind of rules and engineering rules because they don't really apply directly. What does apply, of course, is the theory of evolution. Um, as Dobzhansky said, nothing makes sense outside the light of evolution. I think he's right, definitely. And this is the difference, basically, between an engineering approach and a biological approach, because there is no overlying, arching theory of an engineering. There certainly is in, in, in biology, and I think this is what we always are aware of. But I, I like your idea of, of, of relating the idea of neuroethology to engineering in a sense because, well, yes, as you mentioned, the technical aspects of the field require, at least in my, in my hands, require taking technology, whatever it is, to the field and approaching a biological problem in the field using technology. I've done that since I started. We built sound synthesizers. We built tape recorders. We built digital recorders. We take lasers to the field, as you mentioned. We try to take any technology we can to the natural habitat of the animal and make measurements. And that's what, it's been a challenge, but it's been, it's been rewarding in many ways. Well, let me answer your other question, because you asked yes. about the... Uh, yes, I wanted, to talk, I wanted you to talk about the ultrasound work and, and then the yes. mode, because these are so interesting. And Well, briefly, the ultrasound work started in, in the year two, actually in the year 1998. 
Um, I had a professor at Cornell University, a former professor named Craig Adler, and he's a herpetologist and has been a herpetologist long before I was in the field, and he's a, he's a wonderful fellow. And he, as many herpetologists, get invited to different meetings around the world, herpetology meetings. And what happens at these meetings, typically in a foreign country, is the last night of the meeting, the locals say to the, to the foreigners who are there, let's go out tonight and we'll show you what we have around here that you guys don't have back home. So he went to a meeting at a place called Wangshan, China, and his local hosts took him and the other foreigners out that last night, and they showed him all these different things. And the next day, Craig flew back home to Cornell and called me on the phone and said, Peter, you have to go to China. So my response was, okay. And then I said, why? And he said, well, they showed me a frog last night that had an ear canal like a human. You've got to go to China and figure out why it has this ear canal. What is it doing with it? Why? He had no idea. So I said, okay. So it took me two years to get the funding. I got the funding, and then in the year 2000, I invited Albert to come along, Albert Feng, at the University of Illinois, my old friend and colleague. And we went to China in 2000 to find out about this ear canal. We went to the place that Craig told us. We got there, and it's called Wangshan National Park in Anhui Province. And we got there, and the first night we were there, we made these recordings, and we saw the ear canal. It had it but we didn't know why it was there. And we made our recordings, and we started analyzing the recordings. And we noticed in our, in our hotel room, every day we would analyze recordings, and every night we'd go make more. And we, we figured out that these animals are having very complex calls. They produce calls for hours, which are extremely complex. They have a great number of nonlinearities in the call. And often we saw elements that went off the top of the scale, because our recording equipment only went up to about 18 to 20 kilohertz standard digital recordings, and we couldn't, at that time they were just tape recordings, I should say. In 2000, we didn't have digital recorders, we only had a tape recorder. It went up to about 18 kilohertz, but at the very, very top of the scale, approaching 20 or even above 20 kilohertz sometimes, we saw elements of the call. We didn't understand this, and so we went back a, a couple of years later with more uh, wide-ranging instruments, and we could then record those high-frequency elements. And what we discovered was that these frogs are producing audible calls, but many of those audible calls have ultrasonic components, meaning components in their calls that go up as high as 128 kilohertz. This was a real eye-opener because we didn't expect it. We had never heard of a frog that produced such high frequencies before. We actually also discovered at the same time a bird that was near our camp called the Rufus Face Warbler, which also produced ultrasound up to about 54 kilohertz. So we found a bird and a frog that produced this. And so we submitted this manuscript to Nature. And as I mentioned in my talk, the two questions that the editor of Nature uh, asked me as he rejected our paper were, one, do the frogs actually detect these sounds? And two, what do they use them for? Well, we had considered both of those questions, of course, but we thought to just reporting the, uh, the new findings that, that these animals produce ultrasound was enough for nature, but uh, evidently we were wrong. So we went back to China, uh, and we discovered by a series of playback experiments that if you play back the, just the ultrasonic components to the male frogs as they're calling, they'll respond. They respond robustly. So in other words, they are detecting the ultrasound, and they respond to changing their behavior in response to the ultrasonic stimulus. So this is the kind of the definition of communication, and we say that they're communicating using ultrasound. Then we did a physiology in the lab of Professor Shen in Beijing, and we showed again that these animals are capable of detecting sounds in one species as high as 34 kilohertz and in a second generic species in the same area up to 22 kilohertz. So these 
torrent frogs, frogs that live near these very loud rushing streams. That The streams themselves produce broadband background noise as high as 20 kilohertz. These frogs that live in this environment have adapted to this environment by being able to produce calls that have energy that, go, that goes above the background noise, above 20 kilohertz, into the ultrasound for the purposes of communicating between uh, conspecifics. So that's the, that's the exciting part. And we also looked at some of the physiological and morphological adaptations of these frogs that allow these frogs to detect and communicate with ultrasound as opposed to other frogs. Can I stop you there? So sure. Does it seem like that, it sounds like that you, what you should do is take an ultrasonic recording and then just walk up and down the rapids and see what uh, see what kind of uh, species that you can record because if they're I mean if this is a, a, an environment that that it's attracting a bunch of species that lots of species could it be evolved to uh, overcome this background noise thing. In fact, I don't think it's restricted to China. I mean, just recently there was a report of a friend of mine. He hasn't written it up yet, but he told me that he had heard about his friend in Mexico who's discovered another fry that produces ultrasound. So I think it's going to be much more widespread than we thought. It's just a matter of yeah. taking the machine out and making the recordings and doing it right. You're absolutely right. That's right. So that, that, that's what, that was the question that most, is most I think to me at least seemed more interesting was that if you look at the normal, the so-called frogs that we know, both new and old world species, um, they pretty much have a fairly restricted band. They call in the lower registers of the spectrum, typically up to not more than 6 kilohertz, 7 kilohertz. Mm -hmm. the, am I correct in that? Yes, most yes. Of them. Mm -hmm. So now they, they're subject to heavy predation. Mm -hmm. I mean, from other frogs also. Mm -hmm. So why has this not occurred more often in the evolutionary process? I mean, why is it that we are only seeing these in a few isolated species? I think the best answer and the truest answer is that we just don't know how widespread this is. Okay. I don't think it just occurs in two species in China. I really believe that it occurs. For example, let me give you an example. We said that we, I showed you in the talk today that we recorded this bird, Abriscopus albogularis, the rufous faced warbler in China. It's a small bird. It produces 54 kilohertz in its call, up to 54, many harmonics. It's a beautiful example of a bird producing ultrasound in its call. It was unknown before. So Uli Schnitzler from Germany, from Tübingen, at the time he was working in Tübingen, was with us when we made these recordings. He made it with his equipment, in fact. He went back after that trip, back to Tübingen, and he taught a class in bioacoustics. And he gave his equipment to his students. And he said, students, the assignment is to go outside the lab here in Tübingen and record 10 of the most common bird species right outside the lab in Tübingen. And let's come back and analyze them. So they did. They got 10 species. They came back. Four out of the 10 had ultrasound. The two that I remember are the um, Kleiber in German, that's um, nuthatch in English, and the blackhead, black pole warbler, the black pole, I black think it's called, warbler. black pole warbler, and there's two other ones which I've forgotten. But four had clear ultrasonic components in their calls. So I think that it's going to be much more common than we think. We just haven't looked. Well, in the case so, of the frogs, there's a morphological clue there. There's an actual structure mm -hmm. that you can look at and say, well, this is capable of of much higher vibration yes. frequency. And so, I mean, isn't that sort of a way of maybe parsing through the phylogeny? Yes, it certainly is. Um, what I didn't show today is it's one of these things, the morphological clues that you're talking about is another one, and that is my postdoc, my former postdoc, Marcos Gridipap, who now is a professor in California, he discovered a mechanism by which these frogs can actually detect ultrasound. And this was published a very nice paper. He published it with me. And what he did was he 
simply took one of these Chinese frogs and, and shined a laser on the eardrum and then played sounds from low frequencies to high frequencies and looked at the response of the motion of the eardrum. And what he found was that the eardrum vibrated with a maximum, maximum displacement at about 5 to 6 kilohertz. Lower than that and higher than that in frequency, the response fell off. There was a peak at about 5 to 6 kilohertz. Then he was able to close the eustachian tube, which connects the mouth cavity to the inner surface of the eardrum, uh, manually, and he found, and then he repeated the experiment, and now the peak of vibration of the eardrum went up to about 20 kilohertz. So it can modulate itself modulate. Well, if you look in the literature, it says frogs have large, permanently open eustachian tubes. Okay? Which is true. You look at a bullfrog, it's a big animal, you can stick your little finger in the eustachian tube if you open up the mouth. And it's huge, and it's always open. Well, this frog appears, he didn't know this, but he, by closing the eustachian tube, he found out it changed the response of the eardrum. So once we were in Beijing, we were holding a live frog in our hands, and we had the mouth open, and we saw the eustachian tube close and then open, as if he could voluntarily open and close it. So then we asked the question, is, how is this possible? So we went to the field at nighttime, and we found a male calling from a little bush near this river, and I took a flashlight, a strong flashlight, and shined it underneath the mouth of the frog. And the bottom membrane of the frog's lower jaw is very thin and transparent. So the light passes through that into the mouth cavity. And of course it goes into the eustachian tubes, which are open. And it goes to the inner surface of the very thin, transparent eardrum. And if you looking at frog from the outside, what you see when you shine this light underneath the mouth is that the eardrums light up. Okay? It's dark. You can see the lights coming out of the eardrum. Okay? So we watch this animal, and then it starts to call. And when it calls, the light in the eardrum goes out. And it comes back on. I have a video of this. It comes back on when he stops calling. So when he's calling, he's closing his eustachian tube. So Marcos immediately brings the frog back home and notices that it has in its middle ear a structure called a hyoid apparatus, which is a cartilaginous element, which makes contact with the skull. And, and the end of the hyoid apparatus is in the shape of a foot. Okay? So you have the foot, which meets the skull like this. And it turns out the only place it's connected to the skull is the toe. So when the muscles that are connected to the hyoid apparatus contract, it rotates, the hyoid apparatus rotates around the toe and closes the eustachian tube. So it's a beautiful system. So what he did then was he electrically stimulated those muscles and got the eustachian tube to close. Yeah. And then we took a lab frog, Ranopipians, which is a leopard frog, which you buy in a, in a store to study frogs in your lab. This is from North America. And we looked at the anatomy of this frog, and this frog has a hyoid apparatus, it has a foot, but instead of being connected to the skull by just the toe, it's connected across the whole length of the foot. So it's fused. So you stimulate the same muscles and nothing happens. So they're not capable of closing the eustachian tube. So the morphological index that shows that this animal can close the eustachian tube and perhaps shift the frequency response of the eardrum up is not an easy one to look at the frog and say, oh, it has it or it doesn't have it. But you can do the anatomy on it, of course. But yes, you're right. I think there have to be other frogs. There can't be one out of 6,000 frogs that has this, is my guess. So the adaptation that you mentioned is in response to the extremely wideband noise of the torrent. Mm-hmm. Is it? Mm-hmm. Uh, so so yes. we should really be looking at similar sort of environments. Or and that's what happened in Mexico recently. This Mexican... Student found this frog next to a very loud stream and recorded it and had ultrasound coming out of it. And I think it's going to happen in Pakistan and in, in, in 
South America or wherever you go with their frogs, with their streams. Yeah, I remember there's something similar happened with electric fish, the, the weekly electric fish. They yes. were not known to produce an electrical field simply because we were not looking for it and we didn't right. have the sensors to measure it. So it's, right. it's kind of a... We just wonder how many more such species are there with all kinds of specializations. That's the beauty of neurothology, isn't it? Isn't it? Yes, mm-hmm. indeed, very much. Can we quickly move on to uh, the golden mole story, which yes. is the other end of the spectrum? So yes. Speak. Well, since 1987, I've been working in southern Africa with Jennifer Jarvis, a professor at the University of Cape Town, who has been my mentor. She is the kind of the doyenne of, uh, of moles. She was the one in 1972 who published a paper in Science showing that the naked mole rat uh, has a system of a reproductive system very similar to the hymenopteran. So it has a queen, it has genetically related workers. This is a mammal, which mimics the, the bees and the ants and the termites of, of the hymenopteran. So it's a beautiful system, and people have been working on that. But I have never worked on a naked mole rat. I only work on fully clothed mole rats. Okay, that's my, my background. So I work on these animals. And so with Jennifer, we worked on the Cape mole rat. And then more recently, she introduced me to this animal that you mentioned called the golden mole. And there are several species of golden mole. They live only in sub-Saharan Africa, south of a line that connects Uganda in the east with Cameroon in the west. And they live in deserts or in, not, not all, they don't all live in deserts, but they live in deserts or in soft soil. The first one we studied is called the Namib Desert Golden Wall, Aromatalpa granti namibensis, and it lives in the Namib Desert in Namibia, southwest Africa. And so this animal is functionally blind. It, it doesn't have, it has eyes, but they're underneath the fur, and they're not image-forming eyes. So they can tell light and dark, but they can't form images. And it has a fabulous behavior. It lives in the Namib Desert where it gets very hot during the day and cool at nighttime. It goes down to about 14 degrees C at nighttime. Um, so during the day when the sun is up, they're under the sand. They just sit there. Sun goes down. They can detect the light level down, going down. They come up and they start to forage. So the name of the game is they have to find food before the sun comes up. So they have about 12 hours to do this. And they forage along the surface of the desert, and they also forage by burying, going under the sand and doing what they call sand swimming. And the idea is to find food sources or food caches, and these are located in the Namib Desert, and sporadically spread around the desert in these little sand mounds, and or as the English call them, tussocks. And these tussocks are topped with a grass called dune grass, the genus Stipograstus. And in this grass, grassy mound is located 99% of all the living biomass in the Nava Desert. This contains coleoptera adults, coleoptera larvae, root material from plants, Spiders, thrips, lepidopters, everything live in this mound. If you dig up the flat portion of the desert, you come up with sand. If you dig up the mound, you come up with all these animals. So the golden mole has to find these food caches, eat, he goes in. When he finds one, he buries into it, eats what he can, and he goes to the next mound. And they're scattered every 20, 30 meters away, sometimes 10 meters away. So he does this in the dark. He has no eyes, and he's... Got to find food. How does he do it? Well, Laura Fielden, who was a PhD student in the University of Cape Town, wrote her PhD thesis on this animal, spent years studying this animal, and she claimed that these animals, these golden moles, find these mounds stochastically. That's the word she used. She says encounters with food patches are stochastic. And if you look at the the golden mole foraging trail, if you make a map of it, which is what we did, you can see that there are mounds here and mounds here and mounds here, but the trail goes from mound to mound. It doesn't look like it's foraging randomly and just coming across one. 
So I disagreed with her description of the of the path. And so we actually did a statistical test and demonstrated that it's not it's not at all random. So if it's not random, the alternative is that it's sensory guided. If it's sensory guided, what's the sense they're using? Well, one of the behaviors that you see that golden moles do is that they're walking across the surface of the sand, they stop their forward motion, and they bury their head in the sand. It's called head dipping. Okay? Then they come up, and they walk again, and they head dip. And they come up, and they walk again. Then they go under the sand, and they swim along under the sand for a while, and they come up on the other side. That swimming under the sand is known as sand swimming behavior, and the local name of the golden mole in Namibia is the sand swimmer for this behavior. Okay, so they do all these things. They surface forage, they head dip, and they sand swim. And then they go to a mound. So we thought, what if they're using vibrations in the, in the sand to localize these mounds? So we took our geophones, which are instruments we borrow from seismologists that measure earth motion. We stick them into the sand where the animal does a head dip, and we listened, and we recorded what we heard. And what we heard was a kind of low-frequency hum, about 300 hertz. But it turns out, what we found out was that the wind blows this typographic grass, this dune grass, and sets these mounds into resonance. And it vibrates the, the sand around it, and these generate vertically polarized Rayleigh waves, which travel in all directions around from these mounds into the sand. So these mounds act as seismic beacons, advertising their position. So we think that this head dipping is actually a way of, oh, I, should, I should back up, a geophone I mentioned earlier is a device which is a velocity sensor, it's a metal, it's a case in a metal case. Inside that metal case, there's a cylindrical permanent magnet, which is suspended to the metal case by four springs. So when the case moves up and down vertically, this magnet moves up and down on the springs inside. Now, surrounding the magnet, there's a coil of wire, and this comes out to a BNC connector. And you connect this to an amplifier. So now you have a voltage which comes out, which is proportional to the velocity of this case. Now, the trick is, and this is a very important trick, you have to then couple the case to the substrate. And they do that with a three-inch metal spike that comes out of the bottom of the geophone. So you, you take a, that spike and you push it into the sand as hard as you can. You bury that geophone there. So now any motion of the sand is coupled to the case, and that moves the case, and then output is proportional. The amplitude of the voltage is proportional to the velocity. So that's what we use. And so... What we think is happening now is that if you um, look at the structure of the middle ear of the golden mole, the one we're studying, it's remarkable. I mean, this is really what got us started on this. When we looked at the anatomy, Jennifer Jarvis actually looked at the anatomy and noticed that the middle ear consists, as all mammals, of an ossicular chain made up of three bones, three bony elements, the uh, malleus, the incus, and the stapes, right? The malleus, or the hammer, in this animal is hypertrophied. It's gigantic. It's huge. It's so huge that there's an actual cutout inside the skull of the golden mole to allow the head of the malleus to fit in the head of the animal. Otherwise, it would stick out and look ugly and people would laugh. Right? So this animal has this remarkably huge malleus. Now, I had a postdoc in my lab from Cambridge, England, called Matt Mason. And he did his PhD thesis before he came to my lab in Cambridge. And that consisted of examining the middle ear bones of 138 different mammal species, including golden moles. And we say, he was able to do was to characterize all of those 138 middle ears into two groups. One he called a microtype ear, which is, consists of ears like our own ears, dogs, cats, most mammals that we know fit in that first group. 
And he was able to characterize that first group in t- with two parameters. One was called the center of mass, and one was called the rotatory axis, the axis around which the bones rotate. And in the microtype ear, our ears, for example, and dogs, cats, the center of mass and the rotatory axis are roughly superimposed. Okay? So if I can give you a demonstration here, this is the middle ear of a golden, of, a, of an ear. Okay. Okay. We'll make it probably. Oh, sorry. sorry. <laughs> you don't explain in words. So, <laughs> anyway, so what it means is that the rotatory axis and the center of mass, if they're superimposed, it means that if the head moves back and forth, there's no relative motion of the middle ear relative to the head because the center of mass and the rotatory axis are superimposed, okay? You can, you can picture them both moving at the same time in the same way. In the golden mole, because of the hypertrophied malleus, the center of mass is displaced from the rotatory axis, and as a result, moving the skull back and forth causes a lag in the middle ear motion bone, the bones of the middle ear, and we get what we call an inertial motion sensor. You have this phase lag because it's the, the mass is so the center of mass is so far displaced from the rotatory axis. So this inertial motion sensor is beautiful, and what Matt showed was that you can make a simple mechanical model that explains the motion of the golden mole ear, and that mechanical model consists of a lever arm, a lump mass, a, a spring, and a dash pot, which everything rotates around a fulcrum at the end. And so that's a nice mechanical simple model which explains the behavior of the golden mole ear. But the beautiful thing about this whole story, my favorite part, is what I'm going to tell you next. That simple mechanical model of the golden mole ear is the exact same model that engineers use to model a geophone. So what this animal has is a geophone in each ear. And what this head-dipping behavior is, we think, is taking that three-inch spike and coupling it to the, to the sand. He's coupling his skull to the sand. So his malleae, when he's walking along, are vertical in the vertical direction. While head-dipping, he makes them horizontal, parallel to the surface. Now, any, any Rayleigh waves that are passing by cause motion of the malleae. And depending on the angle for where the source of the motion is, you get relative motion of the two malleae. And you can tell, we think, this is what we haven't done yet, you can tell from the relative motion of the two malleae the direction of the sound source and the vibration source. So this is a fantastic animal. Then when the animal gets close to one of these mounds, then we put our geophones right near a mound, and then we can detect something else, something new. And this is the actual motion of the animals in the mound moving around. Their favorite food, as determined by Laura Fielden by stomach content analysis, are the dune termites. And when you take a geophone and put it near the mound, you can hear the scratchings and the movements of these dune termites right in the mound. These are not detectable from a distance, but only from close because of very low level. But from a distance, what you can detect is the wind moving the, the dune grass on the mound and setting it into resonance. So we believe, in summary, that these animals have a two-stage seismic detection system. At a distance, they can detect the position of the mound, and at close by, they can detect the actual prey items moving around in a mound. What we started to do with the last trip to Namibia was generate a seismic dictionary of the Namib Desert. So we take animals out of the mound and we have them run across our geophone. And each animal has a different seismic signature. So we think these animals are capable of telling one prey item from another this way. It's a whole neurological prep waiting to be sort of elaborated absolutely, here. Absolutely. It's beautiful. Yeah. We are, I think, running out of time, and I'm afraid I monopolized Peter's time. What about uh, yeah, Sama and Todd? So. <laughs> I wish we could have more time um, to, to, to listen to more of Peter's stories, and he hasn't even begun to tell all the stories travels. that he knows or his travels. Um, so we shall close here. 
Thank you again, Peter. It is a great pleasure to have you here with us. Thank you. Thank you for having me. The Neuroscientist Talk Show. 